Welcome to the Busy Mumsy Podcast. I'm your coffee-infused host, Ashley Verma, and I'm here to share all my ups, downs, and all-arounds of being a mom to my gorgeous Adia, owning a fitness business called Define London, and truly managing being a unsingle single mom as we cheer on my husband and his amazing business in Uganda. Oh, yes. Oh, oh. Is this a mic check? You heard that right. Uganda, and he is not doing the daily commute. So each week, I will be joined by a fellow inspiring, thriving, and surviving busy mumsy. We all need to take a deep breath together. We try, we navigate, and not be too hard on ourselves. I get it. I am human, and failures simply happen. I am not shiny, and I am never filtered unapologetically. I am, at its best and worst, busy mumsy. Welcome back, my busy mumsies. Ashley Verma here. I am three cups of coffee in and ready for a busy mumsy chat. Today's guest is a diversity, equality, and exclusion consultant and the founder of Dope Black Dads, a support group and podcast that works against the outdated stereotypes about black fatherhood and cultivates a progressive, exclusive community of parenthood. He is also a dadsy to two kids, Blake and Ocean. It is the Fab Marvin Harrison. Now grab a cuppa and get comfy as we dive on into the busy chat. Marvin Harrison, welcome to the Busy Mumsy podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It means a lot. I really appreciate you um, making time and inviting me. I, I am so thrilled and honored to have you on the show. And I want to say a huge congratulations. Firstly, happy Father's Day. Thank you. And secondly, four years ago, you launched Dope Black Dads through mm-hmm. a WhatsApp. Through a mm-hmm. WhatsApp. And this is just... Four years of graft, of building a business. And and I, for one, come from a place of I moved to London and I actually launched my business in 2018, Bricks and Mortar of Define London. And for me, when I read your story, I was like, my goodness, just like the graph and the care and the commitment to what you have created with Dope Black Dads, but then also to where it is now. I just want to rewind, go back to the day, that Father's Day, how you were feeling, and that WhatsApp group that you just kind of dove into. Can you just take us back to that and start um, to, to how this all began? Yeah, absolutely. So I, for, for me, it was, um, I went the transition from going from one child to the other, so to two, sorry. So I, I think when my son was born 2015, uh, I was just, it's pure excitement and joy, adrenaline. So you're just running on fuel, um constantly and uh the first two years were difficult because there were some things that i realized about maybe what actually happens when you have children versus what you think will happen and the theory disappears so all this like cute stuff about oh, i'm not watching my children are never watching tv and oh, i'm gonna be this type of strict and you know all of these like cute ideas and then it, as, as reality kicks in you realize that actually some of those things are not possible they're not sustainable they're not best practice you just don't want to you know, I didn't want to be a a a, a wall for my children to overcome. Um, I, I wanted to be a place that they can come and be safe, learn, be nurtured, and feel connected, and then use the world as their their practice board. Uh, I'm their safe space. I'm their ally. I'm their friend. And so that changed the way I kind of saw things. And um, you know, and I also when you meet your children, there's an element of like 
they're really here already. They're real people. And I think sometimes you kind of look at babies as little concepts where it's like, oh, I have a child and then I teach them everything and then they're better than I am. And then they go in the world and go make something of themselves. And I, and I nice. realize that's nonsense. Yeah, yeah they no, actually exist. You look at them, you look at them and you're like, oh my gosh, those eyes, they, they, they tell a thousand stories already and you've just begun. Yeah. And I think that that difference really brought me a lot of peace because it took it out of like, it was all my responsibility to do all of those things and into this idea that they already exist. And like, I've got to help them navigate the world. Um, and so for me, that's a much more relaxed proposition than you're in charge of them and you've got to fix them, keep them alive, teach them things. Um, and so the, in that transition of one to two children, I was really struggling to connect with my daughter. And then as a consequence, it affected my relationship with both my children. And then as a consequence, it affected my relationship with my wife at the time. And it just became really difficult to navigate family. Like that was, for me, it was the most important thing in the world to me. I didn't want to there was no other achievement that mattered more than my family. Um, and then it's interesting because I, and I'll go into this later, but like how incorrect that statement was and how problematic that statement is for men and dads, where it's like nothing is more important and you completely ignore yourself. Um, and so I created this group as a way of like, how are you doing this? If we're here just to serve our families and that's the noble, correct thing to do. And that's what, you know, new men should be looking at doing. Um, why does it not feel good? Why am I struggling? Why is this not connecting with me? Why am I not having that depth of love feeling that I know I've had at points, but it isn't really consistent. It doesn't reoccur very often. Um, it's not just with your partner. No, it's not. Like, and I feel, I feel like then it became almost like a subplot where I was chasing her and she was prioritizing the children and like, no one really was prioritizing me. That's how it felt. I'm pretty sure there was other subplots going on, but like that's what it felt like in the pursuit of this amazing feeling. I also felt like I was way more peaceful outside looking into my family than being in it. And so if I would like sit in the kit, stand in the kitchen, walk in and like peek around a corner and see my family and everyone's playing, I would feel really peaceful and loving and like overwhelmed with joy and gratefulness that I, this is my family. But if I sat at the table with them and tried to do it, it felt like chaos. It was like six conversations at once. It was like spilling drink. It was like puzzles flying over that way. And like, daddy, there's my drawing. And I was just like, it's an assault on my senses. And I, I couldn't, um, I didn't understand what, what the experience needed to be and why it wasn't what I see on TV, for example. Um, and it took a lot of work and the group really helped me do that. And um, the original WhatsApp group was really important because these are people that I knew and respected and had affinity with for years. And then this was the first time we had a context that was personal to coexist. It was always kind of work focused. Um, and the, some of the conversations that came out of that group was so powerful and important and beautiful. And like seeing men in a way that I'd never really seen them before. And it just meant it made me lean in and care more about men in a way. Because um, I, I know what the destruction that men can create, but I also know that that's a tiny percentage of men. And on large, most men are having quite a terrible experience. They're lonely, they are overworked, um, and they're underloved. And so as a consequence, they lean into things that aren't particularly helpful, helpful or healthy for the family um, or themselves. And then that's where a lot of these narratives come from. And we don't talk about what the source of people's challenges are. There's no empathy for that. It's like you are responsible for yourself. You must turn up and be loving, caring, 
profiting machine that keeps my family secure, that, you know, makes me feel good about what I'm doing. And no, but there is no reverse. And so men take that. They take it. They just, they take it by force. If it's not given to them and presented. Yeah. yeah. This absolute armor. And I honestly am slightly getting emotional right now because all I am doing is thinking about my husband. Mm. Yeah. Like to be honest, you're, you're in, your husband and I, I don't even need to know him very well, but because of what you explained about him being in Uganda and working, I know because I'm building a global business myself, I know what the sacrifice is. I know how hard it is and you have to give up your family. But some people are just called into a purpose. Like, you know, he's not, he's not doing solar energy because he just wants to make money. He has, I'm pretty sure he has a really st- valuable worldview about sustainable renewable energy that he's driven by and he's figured out a code of how to do it and bring it to market and he he can't stop he won't be able to stop and he will probably you know do things that don't make sense to anybody else looking in but when you're overcome by your purpose you just behave in a way and so i have empathy for that person but because in the narrative of men, it's like he's gone to another country and he's like left you. And then he's like working all the time. And he's like, you know, may not, he might forget some things or he may just be a little bit distracted at the table. So it's like, he's not, he's not doing enough and he can do more. That narrative is like what breaks people down. The fact is the contract between your family, I, don't, I, still, I have no idea, by the way, I'm assuming based on my relationship, but your contract between you two is the only contract that matters. And the external opinions will come. But in reality, you are both on this mission. And when he finishes his mission and sells his energy business for 400 million pounds or whatever, that's your money too. That's your win too. It's, it's a real team. And I think, you know, sometimes I feel like we, we haven't really redesigned how men and women coexist. And in that, I think we allow ourselves to hear things that may make us feel better, but don't complete any of the missions that we set out to do as a family. So... You know, it takes a lot though, because every you're because on the flip side, and again, I still don't even know this, but like potentially you're leading parenting, you know, and driving it on your on your own or leading it in this in an imbalanced way, and your children are amazing, and then he still gets credit for it, <laughs> you know, like he's still just like, oh, your daughter's so amazing, and you're like, uh huh, yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. Thank you very much. Thank you. I did that. Oh wow! I mean, Marvin, we are we are going into therapy session. I honestly, <laughs> for the listeners, we just met. We just met, and I pressed record, and here we are. And I am already on. Like I'm already like so grateful and learning so much. And you're hitting such chords that are so true. And I think that for the listener of knowing, as you know, when you're in a partnership with anyone that and you're raising a child to, you know, check in constantly and give those high fives and shout outs. And what can I do? Everyone's busy, right? Everyone is busy. So, you know, how, how can you, you know, put in your two cents, even if you are far apart from each other, how can you help so that, you know, your little imprint, you know, for the day that is, is, you know, acknowledged and whatnot. But, you know, back to a journey now that's four years in and you really are speaking to mass volumes um, of dads out there that, you know, need to hear and how, how, how to grow. 
what are key points over the four years that you have been in development of Dope Black Dads and the community? Because I know now you have a community not only in just the UK, it's gone, you know, South Africa, it's gone to America. It's, it is global. Mm-hmm. And how are you getting men to take down the armor and to acknowledge and to be and to be okay to then transform to be the best they can? Yeah, I think for, for me, it's just creating a space for the conversation. Like our, our movement or our platform has gone through seven different iterations. We went from a group of people in a WhatsApp group. We then became a community, which was slightly bigger, like 150 dads. And we were collectively trying to move towards a single goal. Then it became a movement where we had different groups and different intersections. So adult black moms, women, queer, disabled. But then I quickly realized that we're all in different places in society in our journey or transformation. And the transformation of men cannot coexist with the transformation of women at the same time en masse. And we can barely make it happen in our relationships. So trying to make it happen with like hundreds of people around the world doing the same thing. What transformation looks like to you may feel oppressive to somebody else. But my transformation is, is that I have to like decolonize my masculinity and I have to you know, look at my life and think about what impact am I having on people and the wider world? And, you know, am I truly a global citizen? Am I really helping with like global um, challenges? And, or am I just like self-interested and I need to go to therapy and I need to like, you know, look at my values. You can't do that around people who are vulnerable. And so really like allowing everybody to build out their own answers in their own image was the gift that I gave to everyone, all these different communities. And my perspective now about men is about the more time we spend together in a vulnerable space, it balances out some of the other things that we do. So I create intentional spaces digitally and physically where men can come together and be deeply authentic. And they don't have to be right. They don't have to be perfect. They can just be broken. You can be, though. sometimes you say something which at the heart of it is just like, I don't feel I'm appreciated enough. What it may sound like is she didn't do something or she doesn't care about me. But like, we know that that's not the case. We know that our partners love us. We know that our children love us, but it may not feel good. And we need to find the language to communicate that. But before you get the language and the skill, you just got to like dump some things that you feel. And you got to say out loud, I, you know, sometimes I hate someone, you know, I, sometimes they get on my nerves. And then it's like, when you get past that and you realize that's stupid, you're like, okay, now I need to figure out what it is. And as we learn the language to speak to our partners, our friends, our families, our work colleagues, we get better. You know, you create a much better, much more positive experience for everybody. And it really comes in to be like, do you know what? I'm something's, something's impacting me. Something's making me feel something. I don't know what it is. I don't have an answer. I haven't got a fix. It's not your fault. I just feel something. And it, then that can encourage you to lean in and be like, do you know what? What do you need? And then as long as you're doing that as a balance and it's like both of you, are are trading on the fact that sometimes you just don't know what it is. There's a feeling. And then when I come back to you, I can reestablish. So do you remember the thing on Thursday? What I found that it was, is that you didn't show appreciation when I had the hardest day ever. And I needed you just to be like, thank you. Or I needed you just to say, I really see it. And I didn't need you to like challenge me on what I was feeling. And so it made me a bit sensitive. And then I, I, I'm glad I didn't take it out on you, though. But I really appreciate the two hours you gave me in addition to my day away from you to, like, process that. That is what, for me, love is. Love is time, space, like, like whatever time you need, whatever space you need. But we're still connected together in the mission. Um, and we still honor each other in our distance of time and space. 
that for me is like everything. And it's nothing, all the romantic gestures are pointless. Those things are what it is. And then off the back of it, I've become a lot more self-determined on my own. I'm being sorry, more accountable and responsible for my own energy and vibrations that I bring to every room that I'm in. And that also then bounces off of your kids. Yes. And they're like really happy to see me when I come in the door and I, they get real attention and I don't multitask around them. All of that is vital. And so over the past four years with, with your journey through this, how, how, has your relationship, like how has your relationship and evolved with the kids? So uh, it's funny because I posted my first Father's Day picture with my just my son to now. Um, and that's obviously been six years. And I just like, I just remember who I was then. And I, I, I was, it was all very heady. It was all very like, I'm going to be a good dad because I think I'm going to be a good dad. Now they just get a, a really quality time experience. And it, it took, you know, the, the, the ending of our relationship with their mother to really make it, which was really sad. Like, so it came at a cost. It came at a cost. It, it wasn't like cost free. And I think when I speak, I'm always trying to invite people into don't let it get to that point where it can break things. And normally what that is, is you just need time. And it's like, if you're constantly unraveling, you really got to invite yourself to the idea that like something isn't right here, which is the first thing that went through my mind. And then we took some time and we was like, actually there's like, our co-parenting is incredible. But we also, when we're, it's just us, we're incredible. When we do all of these things together, it really doesn't work. So what are we going to do? And it's just a really honest assessment of like, how we needed to coexist. And if we're focusing on our children, we had to prioritize that. Now we co-parent like we're two best friends. People look at us and don't understand what's going on because we're like busting joke and we're like hanging out and we're just talking and we're, fo we're very focused on what it takes for our children to be like safe and loving. We both came from families that didn't have fathers around. We're not repeating that. Like we're just not, we're just not going to do it. And that's the cost of, of the choices that we made as adults and it can't impact my children. Like they, they need to have a frictionless way of being raised. They already going to deal with more things than, um, and, and other, other people when I don't want them to be heavily impacted by the fact their parents couldn't get it together. So we got our things together pretty quickly, actually. And I've gone into this really beautiful space and I miss her like crazy, but I know when we coexist in that realm, it, it, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't. We're just too different. Our values are very, very different in that way. And then for the kids, like what, what type of tools did, did you implement for them? Is this, is this potentially like where I love me, your book comes in and the affirmations that, I mean, I, I really want to just hear the inspiration and the whys behind that because, you know, emotions for a child are just like, I mean, your, your kids are older than mine. Uh, Adia, my, my little girl is too. And I mean, her emotions are like, it's as if she's had 50 coffees before 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. And so it is just bubbling and percolating. And, you know, and it is a massive roller coaster every day. I, how, how, how did you navigate with the kids and um, what were the tools that you used to keep them in a strong headspace? Yeah, I, so I, my, the main thing was around connecting. And, and I realized that my gift to my children is implementing ideas that they can use, use long term. So like I, I do a lot of the focus on um, life skills 
And so, you know, we have a whole way of behaving, which is like centered around them looking after themselves. So they learn the things that they need to learn to get them through their day on their own. And I'm there, I'm around, so they can make their own cereal. Blake at six is making prawn linguine the other day. He's, they bake often. He's a better cook than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like if they paint something, they clean it up. And, and so one of the things that like we, I was doing with them was affirmation. So we'll jump in the mirror whenever they were sad, injured, hurt, challenged, or just like looked like they needed to do something together, we would go in the mirror and be like, I am brave, I am beautiful, I am kind, I am Ocean, I am Blake. I am, you know, just really holding the I am, but looking at yourself as you say it and looking at the things that either I know society would question them on, whether their nose shape is different, whether their hair texture is different, or their lips are different. And really centering how beautiful that actually is and like, you know, powering that with information, facts, but the statement of I love my nose, I love my lips, I love my hair really like supports whenever you experience challenge anywhere else. And the key to it really is that they were going to school and they were no longer in my in my direct care constantly all day, every day. And they needed language. And like you're like, you know, you're saying your family's in Uganda, that could happen in reverse. Like in, in that environment, you can create um, uh, uh, localized racism or localized oppression based on who you are and your differences, though it still is impacted by the global scale of what happens um, from whiteness. But from in that in moment of experience at that level, that can be a real experience. And so it's really important that, you know, your daughter has language and access to information if she was going to stay there for a long period of time because the differences are a thing. And so... I, you know, for me, I'm so glad that we were able to make that book because it really applies to anyone anywhere. It's just like your children, if you're ginger or if they're shorter or if they're neurodivergent or if they have any form of like hidden or, or visible disability, they're different in some way. And people will point out those differences and try to ridicule them. And you need language. Your kids need to understand what to say about themselves, what to say to the world in that time. And this book gives you that step by steps for parents. Uh, on behalf of children on how to do it. And were they involved as well with the book? Oh, absolutely. They're like, they are the book. The book is them. Uh, you know, I'm drawing it out, but they really could have easily got an author credit for the context in which they gave um, and how they interpreted the the framework. Because I gave them, yes, I am this, but they apply it to the world. And I'm the one that then picked it up and turned it into words and images with Diane Ewan. And I'm just like, I'm over the moon. It's so beautiful. There's nothing more of a compliment than seeing your children immortalized in some sort of animation that really feels like them and really honors them and their worldview. So, you know, it's it's by far my biggest achievement in parenting because it's the one thing that I truly feel we did together that, you know, highlights the experience that I have had as a as a father. And and with them going to school and uh with the way that the world is, and it is not a kind world. Um, do you find that they're coming back from school and still feeling the the affirmations that you are giving them and that you're instilling in them that they're they're staying true to that? Or do you feel that there are times and days that they come back and it's a bit of a wash because of you know certain jolts and whatnot that can happen? Yeah, and I think inherently what happens is you put your children to a confidence level that gives them safety and security to deflect a lot of the small interactions. But there'll be a day when something adverse happens, that like someone they truly respect, a teacher might say something really problematic or you know, someone that they really respect that's in their community, their wider family that says something about their, their likeness, their way of being, their behavior, 
and you know it will really challenge them and then you have to reestablish all of those values again but the soft things that happen you know Ooh, i don't like you like you know i know if i look at the situation i'll have ev evidence and understanding that they they're saying that because of something because of their gender or because of their what they look like whatever um and i'll be able to make a call but they won't understand that you know the first time i was racially abused i was like eight years old that i knew of i was eight years old people are singing a nursery rhyme and putting the n-word in it and saying they're going to shoot them and it was just like oh so I, I didn't understand what that meant i'm singing along like do 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 i go home sing the song again and my mom's like what did you say and i'm singing it again and she said, don't ever say that and she gave me context as to what it could mean and i'm like so what they don't like me like all the people that I play with every day are just saying that to me, knowing like who I am. They may not have known, but I'm saying that's what's happening in your homes. You're learning those types of nursery rhymes and then you're coming around me and singing it. That was a real problem. It took, I never really got peace with that until I was much older. You know, it comes up in therapy and you're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. It's like, yeah, that is a bit mad because I'm different to the rest of my family. You know, I'm way more focused on social change, especially focusing on race and stuff in comparison to my wider family. My wider family are all into public sector and helping people. But race for me is a real bugbear. It's like, those, those are the types of events that shape me. So I want my children to have the language and the counter for it, or I can't have them not having answers as to why they're being treated a particular way, why they're different, why they may not have the same opportunity, why they can't play Jesus or in the school play or whatever the thing may be, you know? And what, then what can you share with the listener, especially a dad that, is trying to also navigate this at home and are it's like, you know, you know, any tips or what, what you can help them with aside from reading your book and joining your community. Uh, you know, it's, it's like what could be like five things that they could do that really start to help them have the dialogue with their kids or have the dialogue within themselves. It starts with the armor, right? It starts with that armor, regardless race, creed, religion. It, we all have an armor. We all have this protective thing around us. And I just feel like, how do you start to like un let go of the layers so that you can help the next generation and prepare them for what is, excuse my French, a really fucked up world. It just is. Mm -hmm. It just is. I, I, I honestly, I, I'm, I'm not a very proud American. I will, I will tell you that. And I'm, I'm not. And I am I'm not happy with, with how things have gone from in my country and, and that. And I want to be able to take my, off my armor and give to Adia as much knowledge as possible. And, you know, what, what would be your, your tips, your advice, you know, for anyone listening? Well, I, and, and it kind of speaks to what you just referenced, and I, and I, I, I want to be very clear about what I mean, but I, I'm really clear that I don't I, attach myself to any identity that I have no control over. Like mo most of like, so for me, nationality has always been really problematic because it implies a superiority based on a location. And inherently, you then find yourself like attached to an idea. Like when you're operating at political levels or national levels, so much happens that has nothing to do with you and your values and your worldview. You just, it's just happening around you. And yeah, we vote in a president, but they all do the same thing. My, uh, we got Boris currently versus Cameron versus May versus Blair. They all went on their own agenda, went on war with Iraq, war with this country, bombed that place, made a, you know, changed the tax laws to oppress more people, made it harder to build wealth over here. Just doing stuff that if in 
a contract between me and you, my family and your family, me and my family and your friends and your my friends, we would never ever do to each other. So I can't attach myself to those because they don't represent my values. And so this is why community groups are so important because my values are represented around other black fathers are more likely to be represented in that space. That for me is my nation. That's my country. It's those people. And then everything else outside of that is just a happening. And when it comes to elections, I put my foot forward and I take part and I participate in the structure as much as I can, but I don't get consumed by the structure because, you know, they didn't think about me when they made their rules, their policies, their laws, their strategies for global dominance. They didn't think about it when they brought my grandmother over from Jamaica and told her that she was going to have jobs, education, and be a really important, like the people that came from the UK, the Jamaica and the Caribbean to the UK were all middle upper class black people from the Caribbean who believed that they were British, believed that the queen was their head of state and really cared about them. Then they got here and they were like, there are places here that are worse off than in Jamaica. Why on earth would I ever commit myself to it? But they were too proud to go home. So they tried to make it work. And many of them went from being doctors to cleaners overnight. You know, the peak of what we could do from the Caribbean coming in when we migrated was being a nurse, a bus driver, which was a really like low paid and um, uh, under respected profession. But that's what we all did. Everybody else just got crushed by by us being here. So I can't commit to Britishness as a premier way of existing. I more have way more affinity to black men who are from a particular area and I'm open to the rest of the world and I really care about it. But one point I was reconcile your identity and what meaning you give it. The second part is therapy. If you're not having conversations about why you are the way you are, you are going to continually hurt and impact people. You're going to continually find yourself recreating patterns that do not work for you. Um, and I've been fortunate enough for many reasons, given the time and space by you know, my, my wife at the time and my children to be able to go and discover who I actually am because I wasn't able, I didn't even know it was possible when in my 20s, you know? And so I spent a lot of time away from, well, not pursuing that, pursuing things that I thought were important, like buying things and traveling and making money. I thought that was the genesis of existence. And only in my 30s did I understand it's actually the opposite. It's and the people the, in my life. Is- it's, it, that is the constant of society pushing that in our faces that that's what we have to care about. Yeah, which is why, look, America is the most hyper-consumer place I've ever been in my life. Everything is commoditized. I was in New York two weeks ago and I walked out of my house to the park to sit there on a blanket with water and I spent $150 by the time I got home. I just, I don't really know how I did it. But for me, it's like they constantly just collecting rates off you and it's just like, it's the tax, it's the tipping, it's the you know, not pay people enough and having to tip them, but then you pay tax on top. And then it's just like, and you're paying for the actual thing. I bought some ice creams, two, you know, gifts that were localized for my family and some water and, and I got dinner and it was $250. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> it's like, you know, I, you can't find peace in that. You can't find, you know, space to, to figure out who you are and, and love yourself because you're so busy having to make it. You know, everyone's got a number they have to make every single month. Otherwise, their family might collapse or, or they might become unsafe. That is not a way to raise a family. So if I was you, I'd probably stay in Uganda, to be honest. It's probably a lot more people. <laughs> so you're saying Ricky did reach out to you and you have been talking to my husband. And- <laughs> oh, he said that. That's hilarious. No, look, I, you know, I, I'm, I understand the, the cultural connection. It's all you know. And, and America is an incredible place in many ways. But if you're able to have a healthy life with space, time 
and real people around you like that haven't been like sold capitalism as the only way to behave you might find more love and support and care in that community than you would by going back home and just being one of you know, way too many people dr driving the same thing. So, you know, I have no idea of the nuances. So I, I definitely haven't been recruited. Well. <laughs> I, would have I believe that. And I, I, you know what, since, since I've been away, it, it is, it, you just, you struck the chord of finding you, finding your inner strength and becoming peace with it so that you can project love, support and education to those around you so that everything everything doesn't have to be a wreck, right? Everything doesn't have to be messy. And I mean, your, your child does that in, in, in during the day with the toys everywhere and the paint everywhere and, you know, the number twos, if you will, because, you know, I'm in the terrible twos and the number twos are awful. Mm -hmm. so, so, so with that said, it all comes back to as a parent, you know, male or female, it's coming back to yourself and finding yourself first to make yourself the best you can so that you can be the best for the little one. Yeah. I, I I I hope you don't mind. I'll just share a view on the t the two phase two and three because Please I just come out of it. But what what I I interpreted from experiencing both my children go through that phase is it's the first time that they understand shape, sizes, textures, and they want to put everything in their mouth and they want things. And if they don't get things, it creates this urgent need to really have it, and then their behavior will become erratic to get it what I quickly realized is it's better to let them have it. If it's not life and death, if they're doing dangerous things carefully, allow them to have it. So if they want to like get your coffee mug and it's got full of coffee in it and they want to like put their mouth on it, like fake give it to them. Like, you know, let them feel like they're actually participating because they're trying to mirror what you're doing. It's not really about the substance. Don't give them coffee, but put the cup in their mouth and, you know, like, and be like, oh, that was amazing, isn't it? And then they'll satisfy that urge and that curiosity. They think they've experienced what you've experienced and then they go off and do something else. If they want to draw on the wall, you're better off creating a designated wall for them to draw on than it is to say you can't draw on walls, but you can draw on paper. So as- This was yeah, covered wall behind me was covered in stickers and crayon yeah and and, and they'll just keep going and then after a while they just stop it's so weird it's just like it's not even very long it's a couple of months they just stop doing things and the other way of getting around it is that you make them repair everything they break you sign uh, them up. so now like like, oh, you're gonna draw on the wall is fine and then now we're gonna go clean it off and do it together you do it with them and as they get older, like after three, four, they can do it themselves. And you just push them to clean and be like, you can't stop until you've cleaned it all. And the, and the pain of cleaning it will be so much that they will never draw on your wall again. I... But you can tell them no. All right. Don't be the pushover. <laughs> no, 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 don't. Like, let them have it, but give them the consequences too. And, and you know, you know, punishment. As to why. As to why. And this is why we don't do it. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> This journey, the, the busy mumsy journey is is honestly my therapy and I learn during every busy mumsy chat because you know it when I am living the unsingle single mom life and I don't know which end is up I I I need these types of I I selfishly need these types of chats because I'm learning so then I can go and implement and I can find space and time and to you know get it together cuz I want to be my best as, mm. as do you, Marvin. And every day is, you know, every day is a learning curve. It has the learning curve. But, you know, we, we, we wake up, we try, we do our best. And then if it doesn't work out that day, you try tomorrow. Mm. It's a real thing. And I agree with you. And I think, you know, 
people still don't really respect parenting as like how difficult and complex it can be. And they don't understand that it's an always on. It's a completely different frequency. And so it doesn't, it doesn't really end. I'm just really strict about things like bedtime. So I structure my days in such a way and I don't, I don't move. And I allow them to be creative in the times that we're doing things. But when the time is in transitioning into going to school, now they're in school. So it's like we wake up, it's breakfast, shower, um, and then we get ready to leave. We leave the, and then they come back at five from 5 p.m. to 7.30. It's like get in, have dinner, shower, read books. You get half an hour of free time. Weekends, you get four hours of free time to do whatever you want. They choose the main activity for each day. We do one thing. Then everything else under that is just like within the structure. you got to go and play. you got to be by yourself. You can go draw. But because your kids are a little bit younger, that first three to four years is really, really tough because they require micro transitions that you have to facilitate and they can't do them stuff by themselves. They can't fall asleep by themselves. They can't eat by themselves, but it really does get better. And from two and a half, you're able to start drilling that stuff in. And if you do it really well for a, for six months, you will find it gets easier. And I can always tell the difference between people who have challenged their children to be self-sufficient versus one that have enabled them because they have to enable them until they're like 12 years old. It's like, you should not be making your child toast at five. You just like put the toaster in, watch it. And now it's out, count to 10, it's cooled down, take it out, get your own knife. It's a butter knife, okay? Spread it really badly if you're going to have butter or jam or whatever it is. And then go get your plate from your drawer, put it on there and go sit down, draw some water. Like, you know, that, those things is very different to like, oh, I'm hungry. And you go and treat, you run around like it's a restaurant. Like it's, it's, it's not sustainable at right, all. Right now, and, and what you just said there, you just described my mother growing up because let me tell you, that woman had some strict rules and mm. I get it, I get it. And why she put them in place. Yes, absolutely. Do you love, do you love her or hate her for it? No, not hate her, but do you, do you love her or did you like find it difficult? You know what? I, I absolutely admire everything that my parents did with me, especially. Uh, I was very loud and wild and you couldn't contain me a lot. And um, I, I, to be honest with you, my, my parents put me in therapy, in therapy at a very young age and probably oh. around. Yeah. So I was um, seven. I started going to therapy at seven and um in for years. And, uh, and then I went, started in and out of it in the teens, in and out of my twenties, my thirties. Um, it, it's something to me that I don't find as a downfall. I find it as something that's only going to help me and empower me. But when I first started therapy and my parents also went through the therapy with me, it just wasn't me being sent into the room. Um, the doctor said, start taking things away from her that that gives her that that feeds her anger because i had i had just i couldn't understand what anger was at that age and how to where to put it and excitement i just i couldn't compartmentalize any of it and they they start taking away the toys away and then it kind of got to be like oh you know give the soap back then yes back in the day in the 80s you know parents put soap in your mouth like that was a thing and you had a naughty corner and you had to go sit in it. None of it worked. I felt so empowered slamming a door that I came home from a daycare and I came back to the house and my door was gone. And I didn't have a door on my bedroom for a few years. 
And that lesson of I need to find self-control, plant my feet. And I, I, I felt that at that young, I actually felt that I needed to just like try to get my feet firmly planted. And I was able to better communicate with my parents about it, to be honest with you. And I've always had a very open dialogue with my parents of my struggles and self-doubt and self-worth and all of it. Um, and even to this day, I mean, I lost my father um, in 2018, but um, I have a complete open dialogue with my parents to this day. I, I actually don't feel for me that I, I couldn't get through the week if I didn't talk to my parents because we're just a close-knit family. And it's like with Adia, I want her to have that relationship with me and Ricky. And so we will navigate and compartmentalize and figure things out together. That's why the tools that you have just given today, like, honestly, I'm going to just go back and listen and listen and implement and instill so that I, you know, I'm giving her all the right tools that she needs. I want to be the best for her. Like any parent, right? We want to be the best so that they can be the best, but then also project to others kindness, love, empowerment, all of those things that, you know, make the day brighter. Can I, can I, can I share an observation? And, and I, um, I, I want to be very mindful about presenting this to you. But yeah. like, um, I, th I think it's really important, Ma mainly because like the more the journey I went on to find out more and understand more has led me somewhere. And then in that, I found answers that I could apply to my whole adult experiences. And I want to share it with you more so just because it might it might have a meaning to you and it might be something that you could identify with. But I, I have always had a strange sense of being disconnected from people, other people. I didn't really understand them and I've never really understood them. And so literally only a year ago, I was asked about my neuro, if I'm neuro, neurodivergent and if there's anything in like my way of being that is bigger than just like what I think. And obviously you never know if you're neurodivergent because you live with yourself and in your mind, it feels normal and you're applying the rules of normality. And I, I air quote that um, into every scenario. And then it's like, Oh, that's not quite working. That's not quite right. And, 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 and for you to say that you were in therapy from seven um, tells me that there's an indicator that there was something going on. And in your family are like responding with that was their answer, which we know we're not here to credit whether it was good or bad. It doesn't matter really. It's just like, that was their answer. But that means there's something that was happening that wasn't what was going on with people, other children of your age. And so, you know, how these things show up are different for everybody. And like mine came out as a gift for many years. So my ADHD was like, I could hyper-focus and I could achieve really great heights. I was really good at math. I, like my, my brain would like, I, I can look at numbers and see the answer. I don't even know how. I'm not working out anything. I'm not carrying the one. I'm just, I can see it based on pattern recognition of numbers and shapes and whatever happens. So I can see three, three, nine, 27. I can just see it, um, which is a gift. But then at the other side of it, my hyper-focus would then create this thing of like burnout. And in my burnout, that's where the expression will become a lot more uh, adverse. And, and, and the two things didn't marry up. And so I was able to create companies and amazing things, but I also was aware that it could go left because if I don't look after myself, I would, I would overheat basically. Um, and that would happen every six months, just be tired. It's never like in a day. It was always like six months later, it'd be like, leave me the fuck alone. I'm tired. 
Um, and then I think you mentioned that your your daughter's really busy, and I think there might be a correlation between you and your daughter, which is really beautiful, because inherently you may be the one that really, really understands her, because there's parts of that behavior that you see. And like, you know, if you're aware of that, like my daughter definitely is special in some way. I can't, I don't know what it is. I'm not even really contextualizing it because she's still too young, but there's something about her that is of the otherworldly. The other day we did a radio interview and she just rapped. I don't even know where the rap came from. She did a rap on radio um, and it rhymed and it like had rhythm and cadence. And I'm looking at this four-year-old like, what, where did that come from? So she has moments of real genius moments, which tells me her mind works differently. So in my head, I'm like, I got to protect that. I got to nurture that. And then I feel like because I know what my way of being is, I'm in a really good position to do it. So it gives me patience. And I had to go research tools on what possibly could be a thing to make sure that she's not crushed by expectation of doing things how everybody else does it. Um, and then it made me really emotional and excited to be able to hold that space on behalf of my children. Because I feel like now I have a, a tune in, I'm tuned into who they are and what they may need from me to navigate. And it will never be things that people understand, but I know what I'm doing. And it's kind of like a silent, you know, journey because you can't really share it with other people who don't really live that way. So first thing is, I'm, I'm you know, I'm so glad that you said those things. I really appreciate you being, you know, sharing that with me. And if there's any thread between what I said and you, there's a really beautiful opportunity to like change the way you maybe look at how, what your, what your role is, because. No, you said it with, with hold the space for her. Like I honestly, that's all that's like kind of beating in my heart right now of just like hold space for her through her big moments and, and all of the things, because I, I do, I, I mean, she, it, I mean, in my eyes, she, she also holds something very special and, She's growing rapidly and for a two-year-old and what she's capable of doing is like ferocious in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. And I will absolutely take from you the hold the space for her. Just simply hold the space and let her come into it. I mean, I'm, I'm her biggest cheerleader. So, yeah. That makes me really happy. You know, I, I think the big thing is, is that I, there wasn't language for what I, I now know, especially in the yeah. 80s and the 90s. Yeah, there and wasn't. Yeah, and in therapy that you, you know, she was like, oh, to have this conversation, we need to go back and get testimony from people that knew you then. And my mom, I would ask my mom, and she gave me the most beautiful breakdown of my personality at five. And she so told me before, but I didn't have an idea of what that could mean. So it was just like, aha, mommy's, you know, I'm talking about my behavior. And it's like, but when I, when I really listened to it, it it's me now. And uh, it made me so happy. It freed me tremendously. And I, 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 there's a part of me that really wants to go and let people understand neurodivergent people because it, it isn't what people think it is. And I think people apply it to mental health all the time and they make it out as if something's wrong with you. But your, your brain has different ways of processing information. And a lot of the times, those ways of thinking can help people and solve a lot of challenges. Um, that other people just can't see and can do things and go work harder, longer, faster in particular areas. So if it's cultivated, it becomes a real asset to society. And if it's ignored and crushed, it then becomes something that is a, is a really violent expression of like rejection because you know, like I know who I am. I know what I'm seeing and you can't make me wrong because you can't see it. But, and, and I think when I have the spaces and I've had the support to go and, 
work on what I know, I've got even better, more efficient. And the, the foundation of that is that the love that I have from my mom, my family, really center the experience that I have. And then I, I and then it allows me to do more good than I than I've ever done. So yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that 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 thought. Well, well Marvin, you are doing nothing but good. And I can, you know, from from the busy mumsy side, I can say please continue on doing what you are doing, not only for your children, but everyone that you meet and come into contact with because your words, your wisdom are so unbelievably taken in and generated and they will for me will definitely stay with me for a very 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 long time i can't thank you enough for coming on the busy mumsy podcast marvin i honestly could talk to you for another three hours and then you know but then i think you're gonna start charging me for therapy so (laughs) (laughs) you are absolutely awesome and thank you so much i appreciate you thanks for inviting me on Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Busy Mumsy Podcast. If you have enjoyed this week's show, then please, please give it some extra love wherever you download your podcast and give it a five-star rating, a high five, a kickball change, a yes, yes, go Busy Mumsies. And don't forget, you can find out more information about this week's guest, what we discussed, and everything else related to the world of Busy Mumsy by clicking the link in the show notes down below. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.